HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. On today's episode of The Food Scene, Lindsay Maitland-Hunt aims to eat what she calls healthy-ish. Noted in her titular book, Healthy-ish, a cookbook with seriously satisfying, truly simple, good-for-you-but-not-too-good-for-you recipes for real life. I want to start by defining what good-for-you and not-too-good-for-you means, because the ish thing is only really understood in the English language. I was recently in Japan, and you say one-ish, and they're like, I don't understand. I don't know what this one-ish is. Is it one or is it not one? So what is the definition of healthy-ish to you? Yeah, so first of all, so happy to be here. And second, I think healthy-ish means it's sort of one of those things that's understood without needing to be defined. But at the same time, obviously, I want to make it clear to readers and cooks what it means. And for me, it means when I say good for you, but not too good for you, I think that's about a concept. It's about feeling when you look at something that it's not going to be satisfying, that you're not going to be satiated by whether whatever that food is. So for instance, obviously we think of a salad as being good for you. Maybe there's some vegetables in there, but there can be dressing. You can mix it all together. It doesn't need to be dressing on the side. There can be some cheese, like you can put bacon in the idea being that these things that pack a lot of flavor and that we might think of as quote unquote bad foods can still be used, but it's about moderation and balance and finding a, like a happy medium. So if I had flashcards of different foods, I I could hold them up and you could probably be healthy, not healthy, healthy, not healthy. But then there is that blurred line, like say, say a hamburger per se, where would that fall in line? I think it depends. Like I don't necessarily want to put any food in one category or the other. I don't, think of healthy-ish as the opposite of healthy or unhealthy. I kind of think of it as existing in its own thing. It's not necessarily the overlap of the Venn diagram. It's saying like you're doing okay and a hamburger could mean 
healthy. If that's, if you, that makes you feel good. If you're with people you love that fits into your life and, and it makes you feel that you're being healthful. Um, but if you're eating hamburgers multiple times a day, that might be an unhealthy thing. I really wish we had like Neil Tyson DeGrasse here today as another guest. And so we could talk about the multiverse, you know, where there are these parallel universes where certain things are healthy and certain aren't, but they kind of coexist. You know, they're all happening at the same time. Because I I really do think I asked you the hardest question first. What is healthiest? And this is the core of who you've been writing this book for the past few years. But I'm assuming who you've been as a person for years as well. I mean, what did you grow up eating and defining as healthy and not? Yeah, so I think that the the way that I got to this way of eating was through learning to cook. And I learned to cook, of course, growing up. And I was in a food, completely food obsessed household. My mother was a caterer after college. Everything was about what we were going to eat. I was encouraged to experiment in the kitchen from a young age, simply not because food was like a cool thing, but because that was what I considered playing around. Um, And I didn't have a concept of what was good or bad for me, but I did have a concept of what body image meant. And I grew up in LA and I remember getting to high school and feeling like, oh, I'm fat. And somehow there was an idea in there deep down that I could change that the way I looked through food. And again, sort of looking at movies, magazines at the time, this was a while ago, I thought I'll just severely restrict what I eat and then I'll feel thin and I think I'll feel happy. And I tried that by going on just like severe diets. And I, I think that's not uncommon for women and for other, also for men and for people who don't know how to connect how they feel to what they're putting in their body. And it did not feel great. I'll tell you when I was like living off of frozen meals for 10 days, trying to, to get somewhere. And I think going to such an extreme made me realize like this isn't going to work. And on the flip side, when I went to culinary school straight after college, I entered this world of so much butter, so much salt, so much fat and loved it. It was like, how much food can I get into my body at any one time? Also drinking, loving being in New York, just going to the, the extremes of excesses and working in a test kitchen where there'd be afternoons where I would be baking and eating 12 different versions of a cookie. And so I think the way that I got to this way of cooking was really thinking about like, how do I find a way of, of eating that actually makes my body feel good. That isn't about trying to exert some sort of control or lack of control, but that, that speaks to a general happiness and sense of balance and goodness in my body. I think the, I'm going to talk more as, as, you know, mathematical and equations. I feel like for a long time, what food looked like, whether or not it was good or bad, was inverse to how you thought it was for you. Um, you know, good food wasn't good for you. And, and food that didn't look good was really good for you. But then those things shifted. The paradigm moved as we started learning that, you know, even some good food, you know, vegetables, where they were coming from, how they were grown, that completely changed everything. And I don't know if that's a bigger part of the discussion of this book, but it's it's been really interesting to see this definition of healthy-ish, even extend past your book and what you've been Absolutely. doing, that everyone is so obsessed with making food look and taste great, but not be outside the bounds, not be like so bad for you that you shouldn't be eating it all the time, and so healthy for you that you don't enjoy eating it. So it is like you said, this Venn diagram, but the union keeps on growing. Yeah. And I think it's great. And I think that the excitement around 
food, like Instagram and food is relatively new. I think what it's been like five years or six years. And seems like ages though. <laughs> I know it's like, what was life before Instagram? And I certainly love it and love sharing food on there. But I think one of the cool things is that when you eat with your eyes first, which you do when you're eating off a plate of food, or you do when you're looking at Instagram, that you're able to communicate something to people. And I do agree with you when you're saying in the past, it might've been like, burger looks bad for you must taste good and the inverse and I think that's so much what a, the book is about is that the food is supposed to look amazing and taste good but not l- leave you feeling bad whether that's bad because you're hungry or bad because you're overstuffed and you feel maybe guilty see now you are at a point in your career where you come off writing these recipes and cooking these things so easily but eight years of developing recipes and writing about food and editor at Real Simple, BuzzFeed Food, and so many more, there is a foundation that you have to make things more flavorful. And that is the foundation of this book as well. It's not just, you know, I have the magic to turn kale into the most tasty thing ever. What are those techniques that you use? What are these flavor enhancers that you talk about that make healthy food taste better? Ooh, yeah. Well, I think one of the things that I think is easy to notice in the book is that I use a lot of miso. I love miso paste. It packs so much flavor. There's the umami taste that we all love so much. Um, And I put that into butter. I put it into soup. I don't necessarily, I think it's taking ingredients such as miso. I love Aleppo pepper or it's sardines or it's date molasses. These things that have existed maybe siloed in cultures, but now in this world of globalized food and food media for that matter which is my background, it's seeing that these ingredients can move beyond the bounds of the cuisine wherever they came from. It's not to disrespect that cuisine, but to say, how can we play with this? How can we swap that in? And I think newness also keeps you excited in your own kitchen and feeling the concept of having something exciting makes me want to eat at home more for sure. And that that does feel better and save money. Yeah, but I mean, you have to worry with, with, again, this kind of glut of globalization and the access to all these things, you don't want to do too much. And I love that you quote Coco Chanel in this book. (laughs) Because I've always abided by the KISS system in restaurants. Keep it simple. Stupid, they usually say, but, you know, keep it simple. And what what does that mean? And what did Coco Chanel say to affect that change? Yeah, so I think to paraphrase the quotation is, um, before you leave the house, take one thing off. And I feel that way about food because at the end of the day, when you're asking about the techniques that get me to these recipes, of course, there's things I've learned making kale the most delicious. uh, That doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily get there through a easy to cook recipe. And so one of the things I'm thinking about is, of course, what are the smartest techniques? How are you going to make it flavorful? But how are you also going to make people feel like they can cook it? And one of the ways that I approach that is thinking like, is there something that isn't necessary? Can I Coco Chanel this? Can I take one ingredient out that might make someone feel like the ingredient list is too long, that there's one extra step. If something is going to use another bowl, maybe someone wouldn't want to choose that recipe. I know that even though I cook all day, that's my job. I love food. I'm a professional cook, but still sometimes I don't want to cook dinner and I never want to do dishes. That's just the reality. So I guess I let Coco Chanel guide that in many different ways, food and also process. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about the nine tenants you have in the book for keeping it simple. You've been listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back.
Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Lindsay Maitland Hunt of Healthyish, the cookbook. And in this cookbook, there are some amazing tenets on how to become more healthyish. And they aren't necessarily about the food, but more so about the process and procedure that you were talking about at the last part of that Coco Chanel quote. Number one, I think, is the most important thing for any cookbook. Any cookbook, read the whole recipe before you begin. And I'll let you kind of read the rest of them, but why set people up with these kind of pieces of advice to be able to execute these recipes in your book? Yeah, so I think that the reason, what was so cool about getting to write my own book after being in the food media industry for so long was that I had been working and writing recipes for so many different types of cooks, and I would take note of themes that were roadblocks for people. And so even though my book isn't necessarily just for new cooks, I had the opportunity to make one spread. You know, it's a list of nine things, if you're new to the kitchen, that would hopefully make people feel encouraged to start cooking and not daunted. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, one of the... (laughs) Reading the whole recipe is one of the most common causes, or not reading the whole recipe, I should say, is one of the most common causes for someone having a problem with what they're cooking. And so often someone would say to me, you know, oh, I, I, you know, that was really good, but the problem was is I got sort of halfway through cooking and I realized I didn't have something. <laughs> and that blew my mind because to me it was like, well, how, how did you start cooking without checking? But the reality is that everyone approaches recipes so differently. So this is my, my hope is to, is to bring things out that people might not have thought of, or that they've already done and they need a reminder. And so, yeah, so the first is read the whole recipe before you begin. And also just pull the things out that you'll need for the recipe. So if you see you need a microplane to grate lemon zest or Parmesan, maybe just take it out before you start cooking so that you're not opening drawers or cabinets or things like that. Um, should I run through the rest? Well, we'll kind of paraphrase because it, it is in the same vein that you prep ingredients before you're cooking. And uh, again, this reaffirmation uh, aside from number two, but number five is cooking gets easier over time because my number two is always read the recipe, blah, 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 but cook everything at least twice. Oh, I love that. Because you never know how it's going to go the first time, even if you do read the recipe and pull everything out and prep appropriately you can kind of put your own spin on things or season the taste, as they say. So I always kind of check everything twice, see whether or not I like it. 
Ooh, I love that idea. I might have to um, attribute that one to you going <laughs> forward. Happily. Appreciate, I appreciate that. And um, and I think that in this day and age of recipes and cookbooks having a lot of eyes on them, there is this sense of everyone getting to own a recipe the first time they cooked that they loved it or they hated it. And that ends up reflecting on the book overall. And I do like the idea. I mean, I encourage people to mess with the recipes, but the idea that the, at the hand of each cook is a different thing coming out and that's okay, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the recipe, but yes, there is a little bit of, um, psychology in here, like being nice to yourself and, you know, it's, great to try new things, but sometimes it's okay to just do your standard. One of the biggest things I hear from home cooks, as I've been asking them over the years is like, oh, I just always cook the same thing over and over again. And at least for me, I mean, that's what I call comfort food. Cooking the same thing over and over again is how I taste those foods that make me feel in my own place and in my own body. Um, But certainly I think that I want to make people feel that it's okay to push yourself. It's okay to not. Um, and also of course that cooking gets easier over time, but also that if the souffle doesn't rise, I mean, there's no souffle in the book, but that's a classic example. Like you're not a bad person. And I just want to be clear that there's no connection there. (laughs) Um, but yeah, of course it's also things like preheat the oven before you start prepping. It takes about 30 minutes for an oven to preheat to the correct temperature, depending of course on your oven. And I always suggest getting an oven thermometer so that you know whether it's the right temperature or not, or putting a damp paper towel under your cutting board so that it's not slipping around. I mean, having a kitchen accident can really set you back. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But it it truly is a a lifestyle more than it is just a recipe. I mean, healthy-ish is kind of a frame of mind and how you approach your food, how you cook and how you enjoy it. And then, you know, I'm looking at some of your breakfast recipes and I, I love a good smoothie and Same I love here. a good green smoothie because I think it's healthy for me, but I don't always love it because it tastes too healthy for me. And that equation of taste to health, but little things like putting pineapple in your super green pineapple spinach smoothie is the spin that I need to actually have that and enjoy it. Yeah, I like that. And I like that you pulled that one out because that's an example of not, I don't shy from adding sweetener to smoothies. Again, I just want to encourage people to get in the kitchen. And I think of sometimes healthy is just like the gateway to what we think of as quote unquote healthy eating. Um, But for instance, using pineapple to make it taste sweet, but just it's a fruit instead of a distilled sweetener that ends up balancing that really spinachy flavor. Um, And yeah, I think smoothies are interesting because I would always make this smoothie that was essentially just a milkshake. It was like bananas, maple syrup and milk. And that's what I would make all throughout high school. And that wasn't a smoothie. And I think it took me a long time to realize that I could make something taste good that also kept me full until lunch, which is why there's a lot of flax seeds in there. Avocado is a great way to add bulk to your smoothie or adding some quick cooking oats. So, um, so that definitely helps. So what makes the cozy bean skillet, well, bean and egg skillet for two so cozy, because that's another word along the lines of comfort that make it seem easy to make, but also so soul satisfying. Ooh, Well, I actually tend to shy away from 
sort of subjective modifiers of recipe titles like that. Generally, I feel like you read my recipe title and you're like, okay, I got the ingredient list. Like I know what I'm getting. But when this recipe happened, I noticed that because it's a recipe for two and the idea is that you could maybe eat it right out of the skillet together, that there is, it's, it's suggesting the atmosphere around the skillet. And I think, I think of things that are saucy as cozy. That's just my own association, I guess. Um, and my hope was that maybe people would like bring this into bed and enjoy it there. It, se- it seems cleaner to have one thing to eat out of in bed than have that large tray that we see in cinema, you know, with an orange juice and a little bowl of that. That just always looks like mayhem to me. Yeah. I mean, I want that. Yes. I no, really not to want say I that. And want I aspire that. to tray life. I aspire to wake <laughs> up in a Nancy Myers bed with like fresh pastries, but I am always the cook. And this is how I get breakfast into bed. I kind of want to move into snacks because I'm a huge snacker. And I I went to your book party and only took one. I was really good. I only took one tub of trail mix away, yet I wanted that much more. And, you know, gorp, you know, the granola, oats, raisins, peanuts, and uh, gorp and granola and all that kind of stuff. They they are satisfying, but they kind of get relegated to either camping or very saccharine, sweet, morning, sugary things. How do you change that perception? Yeah, I mean, the trail mix, so this is the not your average trail mix, which is made up of white chocolate chips, crystallized ginger, pumpkin seeds or pepitas, whatever you call them, cashews and dried apricots. And it's definitely sweet. Like it's not shying away from sweetness in any way. But I think what I was looking for is more of a ratio of different textures um, and something that hadn't been done before that would feel satisfying and interesting enough to make and take on a hike or take it in the car or something like that. But it's sweet. And I'm, I'm going to talk about the Super Bowl, even though this is not a sports show. It is coming up this weekend, and my wife and I are not NFL fans. So Sunday for us is always Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> I know, terrible. Terrible. But you have such delicious soups in here that kind of have these references to what was once thought of as unhealthy you know, menu items, like the loaded baked potato. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder how, again, you changed the concept of something that I wouldn't necessarily pick out as healthy, but may have been, um, and then turned it into something even better by supifying it. Ooh, thank you. Well, I hope that makes it onto your Sunday <laughs> menu. Um, yeah, I think that when you call that out, it does make me realize that so much of the time it is about an advertisement for an idea or a recipe. And so for instance, when I hear loaded baked potato, I think you and I and others might think of that as like, wow, it's gonna be hearty and delicious, but again, unhealthy. And so the idea here was to stick within those flavor ideas to have something beautiful and satisfying to see that bacon on top, the shredded cheddar chives, a dollop of sour cream. But the, the reality is, is inside the soup, it's actually just potatoes, stock onions and cauliflower the cauliflower acting as a flavor balance but also to bring down the sort of carbiness of russet potatoes and they're all cooked within the bacon fat that you end up chopping up and putting on top but the idea that one of the things about healthy is stretching these things flavor boosters like bacon a long way so using that fat to infuse the soup and then to have it on top for both your eye knowing it's going to taste delicious and like bacon but also to have that texture yeah, I mean, I love the idea of changing form, and I see that in the whole wheat chocolate chip 
cookie bars. And you know, it, it almost seems healthier to have a, a rectangular shape than it does a circular one. And I don't know why, but it, it is of a similar vein. But what makes these chocolate chip cookies not chocolate chip cookies? I mean, I think that the, the, at, the, at the base, they're the same kind of dough, these things that started with Nestle Toll House cookies and have evolved into just who knows how many millions of iterations. So this came out of wanting something that tasted great with whole wheat. And I have to say now I actually prefer my chocolate chip cookies to be whole wheat because the whole wheat undercuts the sugar and makes it have a more nutty flavor, more satisfying, and it doesn't hit that whoa sugar saccharin over the top taste. Um, and then on top of that, something about healthy-ish that, of course, like it's what you think of with with the ingredients. So it's going to be good for you, but not too good for you. But one of the things I'm also always thinking about is, as I've said, cutting down on pots and pans. And so with with cookies, I often see great recipes, ones I've even developed that have that use a cookie scoop. But I wanted to take away that task from someone who wants just a chocolate cookie right away. So the idea is it's the same base dough. You could scoop these and bake these, but you just scrape it into one pan, smooth it out, bake it, and you've taken away the the step of scooping 24 individual cookies. I feel like if you ever do healthy-ish too, the subtitle should just be dishless. Whoa. Just eliminate them completely. Whoa, come on board. (laughs) But I just want to read one last thing that was in your book. Um, And, you know, the, the trick here is that there is no trick. So accessible ingredients, streamlined recipes, and equipment you already have in your kitchen. And that is the most comforting thing to read in a cookbook in that you don't really have to change who you are to become healthiest. So thank you very much. And everyone should go out and get this book today. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Big thank you for Corin for sponsoring Music by Cookies and David Tattashore for engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.